welcome to From the Recruit. My name's John, with me is Ollie. Hello there. Uh, and we're here early at Vicarage Road. Specifically, uh, we're in Vicarage Road Cemetery, where we uh, have been here for uh, a, a, an hour or so now. Ollie, what, what have we been doing? Uh, we've been on a tour of the graves of former Watford players. Um, there's a gentleman called Trevor Jones, who's the unofficial historian and archivist for the club, um, who has got a fantastic archive of all the stats on Watford going back to 1881. And one of the things he takes an interest in is uh, compiling the personal histories of players who have played for Watford. And uh, he took us on a tour of about a dozen gravestones, um, including, uh, and it was the highlight of the tour, was the new gravestone that's just been laid this week uh, for John Goodall, Watford's first manager in 1903. Uh, it was put there by the club, um, but Johnny was also uh, the, the main character, let's say, uh, in, in this week's Hornet Heaven that went up. Uh, on Thursday. That's right. Um, so uh, I was contacted by the club to write an episode about this, to be honest. It was, uh, it was such a fantastic thing that the club's are doing. They wondered if I could do something with it, um, given that Johnny Allgood is a character in Hornet Heaven. Um, so I wrote a story that, um, that people have told me is very uh, poignant and moving, even a tearjerker. Um, so if you like that kind of thing, do have a listen. Yeah, it's been a fantastic morning. You know, Trevor has just unbelievable knowledge of, of the history of what football club, uh, and to hear him tell us what, what, what on and also stuff like which Ollie's been writing uh, for Hornet Heaven it's a really fantastic to sort of learn about an era before Graham Taylor and even many eras before that some of the, the players years, many yeah. uh, but we're going to head over to, uh, to Vickers Road uh, for Watford against Newcastle United uh, and see uh, if uh, this lovely sunshine that we have the last home game of the season will continue uh, and be good for, uh, for the Hornets So the game finished, Watford 2, Newcastle United 1. Uh, we've had a, a, a lovely sunny afternoon, which is always good for the last game of the season. And uh, with uh, now Jason. Hello there. And Geordie. Afternoon. Uh, and we, we, we've got to 41 points. Watford are now 
technically safe. Our last home game, our last game against Manchester United is going to be uh, a pure celebration. So rules for this podcast. Or actually, not, actually, these are rules for the next podcast. You can be as negative as you like in this podcast. Next week will be the celebration podcast. So let's get it all out of the system, ready for the summer. Uh, the game started amazingly well with a Watford goal within, within minutes, Jason. It did, and we were a bit worried because we thought we might have ended up blowing the chance. It looked like Andre maybe had taken a, a touch too many, which is dangerous when you're Andre Gray. And then I'm not sure who went across two in the middle. They perhaps we thought, oh, they can have a shot. We can see we can see the goal there, but no, no, they sort of waited a bit too long. Eventually got along to Prayer. He didn't fanny about, did he? Straight in the bottom <laughs> corner. Thank you, Bobby P. Let's get one negative out of the way. Let's let's go with it straight away. The next goal did come from uh, Andre Gray. But as Jason said, it was still the Andre Gray that we know if he happened to get a goal this time. And Jason was saying Andre Gray had one touch too many. Often that's just one in his case. <laughs> I think we saw a bit of why we bought Andre Gray today. We've all been crying out for two men up front uh, with Gray. And there was a stage in the second half when we had, I think, De La Feu, Will Hughes and Gray up front. And we tried a long throw. And you kind of think, guys, Steph's not there. Troy's not there, right? There's a reason these guys are there. It's because, you know, we're not going to play in this way. We need to play differently. And I think uh, Andre Gray, if we, if we don't let him have any holiday this year, but give him loads of homework. Right? <laughs> and I think maybe get, maybe decide, instead of writing off £18 million and trying to buy another player, give Lineker 100 grand or something just to sit down with him over the summer and say, look, you're half a good striker, but you're like a car that, an old, an old barn find, you know. <laughs> you could be really good. But you, at the moment, you're not. In, you're, you're, the bit's missing. You've got no wheels. You know? But what's, what is missing with him? Is it, is it purely that first touch? Uh, the first touch isn't great, but I think the first touch comes with confidence. If you're a striker, it's quite important to be able to score goals. And he hits goalkeepers with alarming regularity. Uh, and the Spurs game, you know, we see that freeze frame where you think, if that had been a, a top-class, confident, 20-goal-a-season striker, he would have slid it in the first, near post bread and butter. I don't know, obviously I don't know the guy, but he strikes me like you can see like he would have been a good player to to grow up with he'd always been a good player this is he's playing at the top level and I don't know if he gets a bit of stage fright or if he's not quite confident in himself would I looking at him you think he's the most kind of confident guy you know his, his um, personality when he came here was kind of you know not a bad boy but it, was, it didn't look like a guy who was kind of lacking for confidence I don't know I don't know what it is with him but I think he might be worth persevering with simply just to because we've written to not the right the money off and because it's not he's almost a good Premier League striker. We just need to get the bits that he can't do to come naturally to him. Yeah, we've sort of highlighted these um, sort of negative points so far. So we, we need to be fair and highlight his, his strong points. He's still making those runs, and they're good runs, and he times them well. He doesn't get caught offside that no. much, uh, and more often than not, he does find himself the other side of the defender with the ball at his feet. That's why we're saying he's missing all these good chances, and he's not afraid of making those runs either. He's not missing his chances and then going. Oh God, I've missed. Someone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hide. I'm not gonna take another chance for us the game. He keeps going and going and going, and, and that rewarded him today because he pops up at the back post with a goal. So, yeah, they, I think I agree with Geordie. I think it's probably fair to say we're gonna lose a Carker. We probably don't want to lose Gray as well, as well, and leave ourselves with Justini as a striker. Well, that would be very expensive. Very, very expensive yeah, exactly. to, to get anyone above Andre Gray's standard is going to be 20 million plus, and you can't get two of them. Um, so yeah, I think you, if, you know, if you look at that, there's three strikers we have at the moment. I still think ideally there's four. Um, you want four of them up there, or to choose from. We got obviously Sinclair and Success who are on the books. So, so should we? No, I mean no, no, probably, but no, no, no. I mean you want to have, which we're never going to have, I don't think. But you want to have four proven people who you can pull on to play up front. 
Now, we haven't got that moment, but out of the three we've got, you think Akaka could be the, if you had to put him in a, a one, two, and three, you'd put Akaka at three, Gray at two, and Dini at one. You'd hope it'd be a, a different way round, and you know, if you're going to drop one off, it would be Akaka, so you'd have to spend an absolute fortune. But we still got another game, and if uh, Andre scores a goal at Old Trafford, uh, hopefully he won't do his uh, hand behind the ear that he did again today. Andre, you're not going to become a uh, fan's favourite by doing that. Uh, but the, the second half sort of went on, Jason, but it wasn't 100% comfortable. If it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't particularly uncomfortable either. Oh, I thought yeah. uh, they were playing the ball about nicely. They, I think they suffered a little bit from us in that they were playing the same way. They were pressing high. We were giving the ball away more often than we'd want to. And they probably did as well. They had a few sort of straight passes and went out for throws. But when they were able to keep hold of the ball... They were they, they were good at controlling possession, but then whenever they tried to get it in behind for Dwight Gale to run onto, I thought um, Cabaselli and Cathcart did a fantastic job. They looked really, really calm um, and mopped everything up there. I don't think Connie's had anything to do, really, in that first half, did he? Yeah, Craig Cathcart, proper defender, as uh, Richard, who sits next to me, uh, kept saying. Proper defender. Um, and I suppose the only bad bit in the game where it really flipped around, they, they got their goal, which was, I think... For me, that was the only way they were, they were going to score a goal by having a, a break um, and, and being a, a little bit lucky. They weren't going to dominate the, the, the field. But, Geordie, did you feel it was the substitutions that maybe Harry went a little bit too defensive? I know technically, if you look, he put Yamat a bit further up by putting, uh, taking off Troy. Maps in, in, in the place of Yamat, but it still felt incredibly, incredibly defensive from quite a, an early point in the game. Yes, uh, again... It's easy to look at uh, all substitutions as being tactical. Yeah. How much was driven by we can only get this much out of the players, and he chose to start with certain players. We don't know who's carrying knocks and who we don't want. Who we want to have a clean bill of health in the summer, so we can have a proper pre-season. So or sell them, or sell them, <laughs> or sell them. I think I think what happened today is the players got here. It was nice and sunny, and they said oh, it's August, brilliant, and they went out and they played like the first half of the season Watford, traditionally. And then at halftime, someone realised it was it was May, and so they had a, a second half, which is a bit kind of disjointed, no kind of uh, cohesion, a little bit this, a little bit that, against a team that wasn't really asking that many questions. I think, yes, we did go a little bit more defensive, but if you take off Troy, who is essentially, his role is a battering ram, or to provide a bit of physical stuff, you know, with Lascelles and whoever was at the back at Newcastle, who are you going to put on? to replace him so you have to change the way you play if we're at home either do you play on a counter-attack or do you try and, and win it and who have we got if, we, if we're just you know earlier talking about our lack of striking success if he'd brought on uh, Sinclair would people have gone oh okay that's right it's a recognised striker rather than a defender and shuffle everybody up a little bit so I think it's, it's, it's not just a case of did we bring on a defender for a striker therefore we went defensive it's a case of how did that combat what Newcastle had done previously over what did we have to do to protect certain players? You know, if you've got certain players on our team, you know you're going to give up two, two subs because, you know, Pereira, Okaka, Hughes, people like that don't last generally 90 minutes. If Troy was carrying a knock, we don't know. Or well, you did seem to get a little bit of a knock at the beginning yeah, of the second, the half. second half. Yeah, and then the kind of Hollerback is a great one for kind of going down, doing a really good kind of like a lame... You know that when you see like a dog with three legs, and and it's and it's kind of wants to play with the dogs with four legs. You see it on YouTube, the kind of heartwarming videos. He kind he of does that limp. Does and then, it, he only does it when he loses a 50-50 challenge, yeah. as was evidenced yeah. by the that, that challenge he lost in the last sort of few minutes of the yeah. game today. And then then yeah, he kind of does that limp uh, to show that no, I I I was I protected my ankle or something like that. You know, <laughs> I've I've a reason to be angry. And then within a couple of minutes, he's running around 
like a dog with four legs. <laughs> uh, the last 10 minutes, Jason. The atmosphere, you know, it, it has that, as you know, even Jordy said, the players felt it, but it does have that sort of summery feel, that, that positivity when the sun's out and everyone's wearing their shirts and the whole place feels a little bit brighter. But there was a, a, a certain feeling in the rookery, I think, where we, where we sat. Uh, and it sort of sounded, as you heard in that little montage earlier, it was a, the whole stand was up and uh, behind the last 10 minutes. Yeah, I think so. And it, it, it was nervy, and, but the crowd was still sort of in good voice and getting behind the team. And perhaps again, that was, perhaps that was because we were set up so defensively. And we, for all the crosses that were coming into the box, we seemed to be defending them reasonably well. And, and sort of that, it doesn't feel that way, Jason. It never feels it, that way when it's your team. It, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But if, I'm sure if we look back at it in the cold light of day, I think Kafka and Cabaselli were blocking most of those crosses and they didn't really have... Again, didn't really trouble Carnesis. I think the only person that troubled Carnesis after their first goal was Mariapa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's so yeah. Those last ten minutes, I think the crowd. It was like you said, the first half. It was. I don't know if it was comfortably uncomfortable or uncomfortably comfortable, but we kind of knew, I think, in our heart of hearts that everything was going to be all right. So we just got behind the team and just sort of dragged them over the line. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity. For the club, if we're keeping the same sponsor next season, like link link your um, season ticket to like a betting account with with whoever's sponsoring us, and then if we go two 0 up and then go back to two one, it automatically puts on a fiver for you to trust <laughs> for us to draw. So that way, when the other team attack you, and that kind of tension you're feeling, like, I'm not going to bloody throw away again in the last minute, are we? You know, it, it kind of just kind of builds up a bit like the. Um, where well, you can sell your, sell, your, sell your tickets and it kind yeah. of goes into the next season season tickets some kind of thing there like a free £5 bet for every Watford fan season ticket holder when we look like we're going to throw it away in the last 10 minutes or something like that just to kind of maybe cushion the blow a little bit I don't know because <laughs> uh, Watford end the season uh, end today on 41 points and are completely and utterly mathematically safe but still more pods than points yeah, still more pods than points. Official now. A podcast made by Watford fans, fans. for Watford fans from the rookery end. End of season field here, Jason. There was a big walk of fans uh, to the ground today. Yep, there was. Um, it's been a year since Aussie. Uh, a lot of you remember him from last year. I think he won the support of the season award at the end of last season. Sadly, we all remember he lost his battle against cancer uh, uh, this time last year. So uh, a group of family and friends gathered today, uh, starting at Westfield Community Centre, uh, and walked from there to the to the game today uh, in his memory. Uh, and there was a lovely Watfordy family moment right so the, as a pitch uh, the players are going around the pitch uh, with their families uh christian capicelli he was awarded the uh, the community player of the season uh, and uh, his little son stole the show yeah he kind of carried the ball into the goal so obviously the has been teaching him how to finish with his hands <laughs> uh, uh, which is uh, which is nice yeah i mean it's, it's nice to see the players with the, you know with the kids running around and you know you never know Will there, will there be one of them ever who plays for us? You know, again, I guess it's less likely with them being such a cosmopolitan squad. But if if they settle, if they make it, it'd be nice to see one of those players again. But yeah, it is nice to see them. And the players. I mean, we um, Mike and I saw Kabul uh, at the um, at your place, and it's just nice. You know, these these people still exist in the background, and you know, in a way, these kids, especially with the foreign players, play a massive role in helping them settle. So, in a way the kids deserve a little bit of the limelight and a bit of fun because it's the families particularly who, who I guess, who make travelling abroad to, to pursue your living a difficult thing. So, yeah, yeah. and Kebaselli's kid looked like he, uh, he's quite confident in front of the, in front of the crowd. Yeah. Uh, but, Jason, the home form this year, you know, this is his last home game of the season, how do you feel as a, just, you know, ignore the away games, we literally looked at Watford at home, how were we? How does it feel as a Watford fan to watch 
As a season guard, how does it feel to watch Watford this year? It's been a bit indifferent. Um, I, I think in the first half of the season, my expectations were certainly higher. And then I think I think it was a Huddersfield game when it absolutely rocked them. I we'd had a bit of a wobble and we hadn't sort of gone into the full silver meltdown at that point. Um, and I well, I remember walking into that game thinking this is an opportunity to to get things back on track and sort of put that wobble behind us and get going again. Um, and we absolutely capitulated. And since then, I think it, it's just been. You know, I went to the Leicester game thinking we wouldn't do anything and we won. Then went to Swansea thinking, OK, maybe it'll be all right, and, we, and it wasn't. I, I felt sort of half-hearted going into those. And since then, it's just been not, not that I've not enjoyed it. It's, it if you were winning sort of 5-0 every week, it'd be great. <laughs> but, but the excitement of hanging on for a 2-1 win against Newcastle, you know, it, was quite, it was quite enjoyable at the end. We'd like to sort of back to the, the chanting and everything. Truly, what, what was the best win on the spot of that checking our fixtures list, I think I'd struggle. I think um, Jason mentioned um, Silver Meltdown, and that's Mike's gone to see them play, hasn't he? <laughs> is, is that why he's not here? Yeah, Mike's, uh, Mike's in uh, Sweden to see Metallica, uh, and happened while he's there to uh, go and see four games of football uh, around uh, uh, Stockholm. Uh, but the, yeah, any, any legendary game do you think that we're going to come out? The Chelsea game, maybe? I think the, the Chelsea game, I think the way it, the way it happened with the kind of them coming back kind of you know it was kind of a Watfordy can we hold on for a 1-0 win oh no of course we can't we've let a goal in with 10 minutes to go and then okay let's see if we can hold on actually no what we'll do is we'll spank them yeah. um, so, so that I think obviously was, a, um, was, that, was that a midweek game yeah yes yeah, so that always makes it a bit better doesn't it we beat Arsenal didn't we well that's the other one the Arsenal game at home that, so. the 2-1 early in the year under Silver that was the other big game but it was only 2-1 the yeah. Chelsea was 4-1 which in terms of the position of the year in many ways that Arsenal home game was the peak of the season mm. it all went downhill from there but do you think though the which one do you think was more important to driving the team on and making a success of the season I think the, the Chelsea game I guess gave him a, a, you need if you like the, um, the injection of adrenaline as late as possible given our second half of the season tradition of a bit like the Christmas decorations type thing um, I think I think for a certain, for a certain generation of Watford fan, you you probably have more Arsenal fans as friends. It's probably like a generation below us who will have more Abramovich inspired yeah. Yeah, uh, or yeah, yeah. or non Wenger inspired as his latter half of his um, time at Arsenal. Maybe more Ars- more Chelsea fans, so maybe that's kind of a more bigger game for you. But I think you know the Ar- the Arsenal's, the Spurs, the Liverpool's, the teams that were kind of either big locally in the 80s or just big nationally in the 80s, the Man United even are the ones that your your cohort supports. So it's always nice to stick one up them um, or on them. <laughs> uh, and then I guess you know Chelsea's always nice to be, but they've they've been in a bit of disarray anyway this season. So it's just it's nice to see uh, I guess us not be the um, the most miserable fans walking out of a home game. There've been a few of those this year. So at the beginning of the podcast, I was with Ollie at Vicarage Road uh, Cemetery after our tour. Uh, and, and particularly, as you heard, we were there for the new gravestone that the club have put on the grave of Johnny Goodall, or Johnny Allgood, uh, as he was called by fans. And uh, I actually met up with Ollie's brother, Jeff, 
who is a, a massive uh, historian uh, and is as passionate as Watford as, uh, as we all are. Uh, I chat to him about Johnny and, you know, just trying to find out exactly who he was. Quite simply, the biggest name in Victorian football. He was there at the very start of professional football in the northern towns of Lancashire. In the very first season of league football, 1888 to 89, he played centre forward for Preston North End, the Invincibles, who won the double, unbeaten. He was the top goal scorer, 21 goals for the season. He played 14 times for England over a period of 10 years when England only played three international matches a season, scored 12 goals. He captained England twice. He wrote an instructional manual called Association Football on how to play football. This was after he'd moved from Preston to Derby County. Trying to put him like, trying to liken him to a modern day footballer. He was David Beckham of his time. Perhaps even bigger. I was, I was trying to think who would be his modern-day uh, comparable. And, yes, Beckham is about as, as big as it gets in English football. But he was probably even bigger than that, because I don't think Beckham wrote a book on no. how to play football. No, just, a, just an autobiography on life with, uh, with posh bice, yeah. You know, big megastar, let's call him. How did he come to be at Watford, little old Watford? the biggest star of the game or coming up into this environment. Watford at the time were in the Southern League. They'd actually just been relegated to the Southern League Second Division in 1903. They'd only been a professional club for six years. Um, you know, it's the same period of time that the Potsos have owned, uh, owned Watford, six yeah. years. Um, so from that time, from 1897 when they turned professional, they got promoted into the first division of the Southern League, struggled very badly because they were playing some of the best teams in the country, Spurs and Southampton, who were FA Cup finalists, uh, but weren't invited to join the Football League because the Football League was basically a closed shop uh, run by the Northern and Midlands sides. Watford found themselves relegated back into Southern League Division 2 and Alderman Ralph Thorpe, who was the chairman of the council, put some money into the club. Uh, you could imagine that he envisaged uh, the town becoming a little bit famous through its football club, and it was, I would say, the first of many instances of uh, a moneyed local man putting some money into the club and deciding that the kudos of having a big name as the manager uh, would uh, so sort everything out. Yeah. And did it, did it work out with Johnny? Yes, I think it did. I mean, Watford got promoted in his first season unbeaten. They won the Southern League Division 2 in 1903-4. I don't think the opposition was all that strong. There were amateur clubs such as Southall <laughs> and the reserve teams of the Southern League Division 1 clubs, Swindon Reserves and Fulham Reserves and so on. So whilst Watford were invincibles, I don't think it was uh, quite the level of invincibility of uh, Preston North End that uh, Johnny Goodall had been associated with 15 years earlier. Most important of all, over the following six years, they did establish themselves in the Southern League Division 1 with Goodall as the manager. Given the uh, closed shop nature of the Football League at the time, uh, this was as high in the league as... Watford could possibly have been. You know, they finished ninth 
in, in the first season in Southern League Division 1 out of, I think, 18 or maybe 20 clubs. And this was a pretty significant achievement for uh, a club that even then was, was only a few years into professionalism. It sounds like he, he was a man who took Watford to the next level let's say, in, in, their, in their development. How long was he around the club for? And, 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 and how did he sort of, why did he uh, sort of uh, leave his position? Was there uh, the normal sacking after uh, six months? Uh, not six months, uh, seven years. Okay. What happened was that in 1909, there was uh, another financial crisis. A lot of people from the town put money into the club and expectations were raised. The following season, Johnny Goodall was still the manager. Um, but they finished, I think, fourth bottom of Southern League Division One that season, and it was uh, decided that it was time for a change. I would see this as the first of many cases of uh, overly and unreasonably heightened expectations <laughs> at Watford Football Club. But then, you know, the same story happens over and over at uh, so many other clubs as well. It was actually a further 50 years until. Uh, the promotion came to Division 2 that uh, the people putting money in the, into the club had been dreaming about. Uh, as far as I'm aware, he didn't, he, you know, he finished playing and managing the football club, but he, he didn't leave Watford. He's, his life continued here. And that's what the, the episode of Hornet Heaven sort of expands on, a his status, but also what he did after being manager at Watford. He did move away from the town for a couple of years. He went to France. Uh, to a town called Roubaix in northern France where he was one of the wave, the very first wave of British coaches who went abroad and British coaches were much in demand in Europe at that time. The English Football League and the Scottish Football League had been established much earlier than some of the European leagues and the uh, players who were retiring and had, who'd been household names were, were much sought after uh, by some of the European clubs. So he spent two years in France then a year in a, in a town in Wales called Mardi, where he even played a game at the age of 47. He got his boots out for one final time. But his career within the game of football finished in about 1913. He then did come back to Watford. Presumably could have chosen to go to Derby or Preston or any of the other places, but Watford was where he chose to make his retirement. He, in fact, ended up as groundsman at the West Hearts sports ground where Watford was still playing until 1922 and was also to be found taking the money on the gate at home matches. You know, this would seem uh, to be a case of diminished circumstances. You know, times were different. We referenced David Beckham. David Beckham won't need to make a post-football career as a, a groundsman at a, at a cricket and football club. Players did need to, to, to scratch a living. He had a, a family, I think six children. Many of them lived with him at his house in, in Long Spring. One of the children ran a caged bird shop on Market Street and he was often to be found helping out in the family shop. Uh, he also had pet foxes which he had domesticated and he used to take them for walks on a leash. Was that, was that, was that common? I don't believe so. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's the David Beckham, the eccentricness. Uh, you know, pet foxes. It's interesting though. They sort of you know link it to now. You, you, you hope that the sort of family club connection, warmth that we know as Watford fans in the modern era, you know, post Graham Taylor, was actually sort of around beforehand, and, and something of the area, something of the club, something of the people who he had, you know, who supported him. 
and watched his teams, he had a connection to want to come back. I think that's right. And, you know, he was something of a figure in the town. Uh, there are stories of him cycling. I mean, he didn't have a car. He had a bicycle. Uh, cycling around town and members of the public doffing their caps to him and you know, fathers telling their sons, there goes Johnny Allgood, the, the finest sportsman that, uh, that ever lived. He would probably have rather enjoyed that, you would think, is to, to uh, sort of to have a, a certain status uh, and, to, and to remain known in the town uh, right until his death. We're the Orns, you're the Orns. Come on, you Orns! Today, to 81, have had a, a massive season with several huge displays. And uh, one man, Paul Vincent, who is a, a designer and a photographer, I spent some time with them this year and they've released an ebook which uh, the donations that uh, put to it go towards next season and more of the same from the 1881. Uh, and I got up with Paul just before today's game to ask him about the ebook and where it came from. The idea came from the fact that I have always been uh, an observer at football matches in terms of not just what's going on on the pitch but also the crowd. When I was a child I grew up on the family terrace and used to spend just as much time looking at what was going on under the scoreboard as was what was going on on the pitch. Um, obviously these days I'm a 42 year old man with a son and um, we get a very good view of what's been going on in the in the rookery end with the 1881. It just kind of got me thinking about what goes on behind the scenes, who goes to all this effort, why do they go to all this effort and I personally felt that as um, someone that enjoys documentary photography that it was worthy of spending time getting to know everybody and uh, understanding their motivations behind it. The 1881 you, you think as a person but they're not, they're several hundred, several thousand people and, and you know, probably a small bunch who are who do all the, the hard work and, and you know, I'm going to flick through the can I flick through an ebook? No, I, I look through the ebook, uh, and uh, you get to see like the, f- the, the the people below the flag almost. Was there anything particular that surprised you about seeing how the 1881 sort of worked over the season? Not necessarily surprised by it, but the um, the level of dedication that the guys have to produce the displays. You know, it's it's not just the Saturdays; it's the thinking behind it. Um, there's all the time spent in the bunker making improvements to it constantly thinking of new ideas you know especially Roy Roy's obviously uh, the, the sort of the focal point of it all and he spends an awful lot of time dealing with a lot of different requests and people and um, yeah it's, it's almost like a full-time job uh, but the, the book particularly focuses I suppose on, on a several big things that they did across the year um, and it's lovely sort of seeing the nights before uh, the big flag uh, against Arsenal how did they come across to you on that, that night before? Stressed <laughs> it was, as anyone that saw it would verify, it was such an enormous undertaking to um, to see and to even just to move it from the bunker into the the back of the rookery and then even trying to sort of work out how to unfold it with so many people. It was just such a big undertaking. It was incredible. Something that I was really pleased to be asked to go along and shoot because that was exactly the kind of thing I was hoping for. You know, everyone sees the displays and the flags and everything on a match day but it was interesting to me to see the effort that goes on behind it and that was really the sort of um, the point of the book really. A non-visual medium on a podcast but is there one picture in particular that you sort of uh, that you you like that's in the book? It probably is 
two or three from that evening actually quite like the one when they're they're all on, on their hands and knees pulling the flag trying to trying to sort of get it in a in a fashion that would actually work their way into into the stadium um, I managed to get myself in the Graham Taylor stand to shoot the lifting of it that was great because it was in one place it just meant that I could I could sort of document it going from right at the bottom to right at the top of the stand or as far as they could pull it to the top of the stand because obviously on match day everyone would have been there would have been thousands of people sort of helping it up but this was literally the efforts of I don't know 30 odd people and it was it was pretty heavy from what I could see. <laughs> Copy of the book uh, via the, uh, the 1881 on uh, Facebook. Uh, it's free to download, but they do ask for maybe a donation, maybe £3, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think there's, um, there's a sort of default £3 donation to it. You don't have to do that. I know that Roy's had um, a few that have been more than that. I know some people, uh, it's not a compulsory thing, so some people have just downloaded it for free. It's gone really well, actually. I know that we've had over 100 downloads uh, in the first three days, so that's definitely, it's actually more than I would expected, and, and I, think, uh, I think from what I can work out, I think the guys are really happy with it too. So, um, yeah, really pleased. A podcast by Watford fans for Watford fans. This... It's from the rookery end. The players are uh, coming out and there's lots of people trying to get signings. We're at the bottom of uh, Occupation Road today. I suppose, are you looking forward to maybe getting a, a signature, Geordie, of, uh, of Kapu? Well, not of Kapu, but of the guy... Well, I don't know if we should talk about this because it's technically outside the transfer window, isn't it? <laughs> but we, we traded Kapu for uh, a Kapu lookalike <laughs> a few weeks ago. Uh, and obviously, we've, uh, it's like when FIFA, when you kind of get to customise your player and you kind of get bored of it and you think... I'll just give him like a stupid like blonde haircut <laughs> or, or some kind of you know, ridiculous like dreadlocks that don't suit him. Obviously, the peroxide has left on too long, uh, and it's done something to him because I mean, obviously, uh, I think it's pretty um, pretty much accepted that um, the Kure's going to be shooting off. So we're in a rare position of losing a player to a better team, um, whereas really under the Potsos or just generally Watford history, in the same way Ashley Young and Barnes and Blissett, players generally go on to. When, when it's our, our time to move them on rather than when they're better, yeah. than, that, better than us. So that, that we, need, we need to strengthen the positions where we, um, where we are weak already, but we need to strengthen the positions actually that we're strongest because we're going to lose Dekure. And obviously we've got um, Cleverly and, 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 and Chalabar. Kapu's shown uh, composure uh, in that position and, uh, and maybe that deeper role is, is one that he can actually be a big asset because I think he's, he's one of those kind of Marmite players where you can see he's good, but often he doesn't show it. It's almost like he's transitioned as a, his role within the squad where for the first two years in the Premier League he was one of the main men and was so you know dependent on him. But this year, especially at the beginning of the year, I mean, I remember when he came on away at Bournemouth and you're thinking, oh, it's lovely that you're still playing but we suspect you might be going in a couple of weeks' time because it was still August. Um, we wouldn't have be, been surprised if he did. But he's showing that actually... Yeah, he's almost like, oh, that sounds ridiculous to say, but almost like he's matured. And, but he's taken on that sort of high echelon of the squad player who you can rely on. He just did a few little uh, dinks here and there, which you think, oh, I could have done a little bit better, but they're definitely far, far down than last year. You'd think he, he has to do that anyway, because the, the rest of the midfield are all quite young. Um, Chalabar, I suppose cleverly not, but when he's injured and not playing, the rest of them... And the guys he's been playing alongside are, are, are younger than him, aren't they? So I, I, he should be mature. It, it, it's a shame it's taken him so long to do it, but the fact that he has done um, is a good thing. I, 
I wonder where he sees himself as well. Because uh, we were saying, I think, earlier in the season that all these signings and all these players playing well would mean that Kapoor all of a sudden hasn't got a, a guaranteed starting place in the side and that he would need to fight and to battle for it. Um, and, and we were hoping that that would inspire him to do so. And, and perhaps that, that's part of it. Perhaps that has a, had an effect on him. And yeah, we, we've certainly seen the, the best of Kapoor um, in, in recent weeks. Uh, we're going to be off to Old Trafford next week. Uh, do you think, or I suspect he'll be on there, how do you think you, you, you set up? Man United still probably want to get a, a couple of points to get a slightly better position in the Champions League, Jordy. Um, what kind of game are you expecting? Well, we'll go there as underdogs, but I don't know if all is rosy in the Man United Garden. Um, so it's a bit, of, a bit of a free hit. I mean, when West Ham went up there, when they needed to stay up and won with the Tevez of all people, um, so there's no reason why we can't go up there if we keep it tight I think our, our trouble is scoring goals away from home so if we concede like we did last time we went to Manchester and like the, I think before we'd even like, realise the game had kicked off for some of our players bless them um, then we'll be in trouble but I think um, United aren't necessarily an attacking team uh, for a good team they, they, so I think I, think it's a, I mean we're not going to go there as favourites I'm not going to put my mortgage on us winning but It'd be a nice end to the season, I think. You know, we, if we play like we did in the first half, there was like um, a swagger about us. And if we can, if we can hold out and get the, tra- the crowd on our side, well, against the home side, if the away fans are up there enjoying it, last game of the season, and whatnot. I mean, I'm not expecting us to win, but it'd be great if we did, and it's and it's conceivable. Whereas, had we lost today or been mediocre or not had the first half, because I think the second half was pretty yeah. mediocre, to be fair, then you might not go with that kind of hope. But I think, I think maybe there is a little bit of a chance to, get, to do something if we can keep it tight and nick a goal and, and send everybody off for a kind of happy World Cup. They've got the Cup final the week after. They've also got... Um, uh, they also play West Ham on Thursday. So Jose's probably going to be shuffling his team a bit, resting a few players. So they'll have a lineup that they're probably not overly familiar with. Um, obviously they're still going to be talented players and we've still got to do a job we can't just turn up to Old Trafford and expect a win um, but yeah you, you never know you never know so we have still more podcasts to go uh, for this season uh, thank you very much again for listening and do tell your friends so come on you horns